welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with the Managing Editor of the Glow Up, Maisha Kai. Hey, everybody. Maisha, we have a very special guest this week. Not only is she an accomplished writer and an award-winning historian and activist, but our guest, Michelle Duster, also happens to be the great-granddaughter of the legendary Ida B. Wells. I mean, yes, our our heroine, our foremother. This, I mean, I feel like Ida B. Wells is the reason we do what we do. Exactly. Michelle has written, edited, and contributed to numerous books over the course of her career, including co-writing the popular children's history book, Tate and His Historic Dream. And her advocacy has led to street names, monuments, historical markers, and other public history projects that highlight women and African-Americans. Most recently, Michelle has written a book about her great-grandmother called Ida B. the Queen, The Extraordinary Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells. And we had the honor of getting to talk to her about it. I mean, and right in time for Women's History Month. Hello. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Excellent you know, timing there. Exactly. You know, um, Michelle and I and her great-grandmother, Ida B. Wells, are all Chicagoans. I mean, Ida chose Chicago as her adopted home. And so I will say that this episode was special for me because, you know, it's so intimate. Like, I, she's literally like, I feel like I turn in one direction or turn in another and Ida B. Wells is right there. That said, my internet was not letting me be great this week, so we'll see. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you were there. I'll just say that. <laughs> we'll no. see how this turns so, out. So, yes, that is true for you guys <laughs> listening. We did have some technical difficulties during this interview. So if you notice you're hearing more from me than Maisha during the conversation, that's why. But I think we got to hear some great insights from Michelle, which is what really matters. And we hope you enjoy Absolutely. Hey, Michelle, welcome to It's Lit. Thanks for having me, Danielle and Maisha. Oh, it's no trouble. You know, we can't think of a more appropriate guest to have with us during Women's History Month since your great-grandmother, Ida B. Wells, is so meaningful to the both of us. But before we get into your book, since It's Lit is a podcast focusing on Black books and writers, we'd like to kick off each episode by asking our guests to name at least one book they've considered life-altering, life-changing, revolutionary. What was that book, or if you have more than one, books for you? Well, um, <laughs> I mean, when I was in high school, one of the books that really had an impact on me was um, Count of Monte Cristo. Ah! Yeah, I loved that book when I was in high school. And actually, I want to reread it now as an adult um, because it just had such an impact on me. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually reading Dumas's, uh the one book that he did write about a biracial man, which was based on the life of his father, which I'm blanking on the title of right now. <laughs> God, what's the name of that book? I'll think of it later. But he's a brilliant, brilliant, such a talented talented mind uh, that Dumas was. So I totally get it. So obviously, Ida B. the Queen, The Extraordinary Life and Legacy of Ida B. Wells is more than a biography for you, as you are her great-granddaughter. It's worth noting that you edited two previous books of your great-grandmother's writings, Ida in Her Words and Ida from Abroad. How was your creative approach to Ida B. the Queen different, and how did this specific concept develop? 
Well, they were quite different. <laughs> the two <laughs> books that I edited before were her original writings. And I mean, so I had to find the, um, you know, the, obviously the primary sources. And I decided to reproduce them exactly as she wrote them, even including errors, because that was made as authentic as possible. My goal with those two books was to make it possible for people to read Ida's original writing without any editing as they were created originally, because I felt it was important for people to hear her voice unedited and uninterpreted. With Ida B. the Queen, I incorporated some of her diary entries and excerpts of some of her work, very short excerpts. But I really wanted to put her into historical context when it came to the 400-year history of Black resistance and Black progress and to help connect her uh, work and legacy to what's going on today. Now, this technically, you know, Ida B. the Queen is a young adult book and has beautiful illustrations, we have to say. But arguably, not enough adults know about the extensive impact of Ida B. Wells much of which we're still benefiting from today. Since beyond her influence upon reporting, she also co-founded the NAACP, and you've produced a book for younger readers before, co-writing the children's book, Tate and His Historic Dream. What do you like about writing for this young adult market, and how do you hope they engage with this book? Well, I think that... It's good for young people to be exposed to this information at a young age. And so, you know, my goal is to make this kind of work appealing to a younger audience. So, uh, you know, no longer will there be people who go all the way through graduate school without hearing about Ida B. Wells. Um, (laughs) And and then obviously, you know, for people who are older than grammar school kids can still enjoy the work. I've had people tell me that with the Tate book in particular, that they've read the books to their children and they learn so much Mm. information so we can always learn something from books that are targeted to a younger audience i've read a lot of children's books and learned (laughs) quite a bit (laughs) this is true and your book really i mean i i I really can't say enough it's so beautifully done it's so beautifully arranged and and told and fluid in ways that i don't think that people would expect in terms of just how you kind of uh, it's a non-linear narrative, but it's 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 really fluid, and I, I think it's incredibly well done. Um, Michelle, you and I are both Chicagoans, actually, <laughs> and you know those of us who are Chicagoans, we know that Ida's legacy looms pretty large here. You know, so I I actually live right across the street from the Museum of Science and Industry, which shares history with both your great grandparents, as it was one of the sites of the 1893 World's Fair. And as you point out in the book, Ida, along with your great-grandfather, Ferdinand Lee Barnett, Irving Garland Penn, and Frederick Douglass, wrote this famous pamphlet in protest of that exposition's refusal to showcase any Black progress, right? They just, they were not having it. And, you know, just a few years ago, the massive Congress Parkway here in Chicago was rechristened Ida B. Wells Drive, which was amazing. And you were one of the driving forces behind that change as well. But even as that parkway was renaming was moving forward, you were also pushing to install a marker at the former site of the first major city uh, site to be named in uh, Ida's honor, the Ida B. Wells Homes. And for non-Chicagoans, that was a public housing development that 
you know, I mean, admittedly kind of had a decline, right? You know, I mean, it kind of became plagued with like crime and drugs before it was demolished in the early aughts. And the reason I bring that up is because I think it's really interesting that the ways in which you've you've opted to preserve your great grandmother's legacy, because I think there's people who maybe would have chosen just the glamorous aspects. Like, why was it important to you, that site? And why is why do you feel it's a pertinent part of her legacy to preserve? I mean, I felt that it was important to give people who lived in the Ida B. Wells homes for, there was, it was over 60 years that it was home Mm -hmm. to over 16, there were 1600 units in that complex. And I mean, there's such a thing as having a sense of place. Um, And I think it's important for people to, who lost their homes, um, lost their community, you know, to have a physical location that they can go to and reminisce and and actually remember where they lived and have something physical that represents where they they lived for several generations. I just really have a problem with sort of absolute erasure mm-hmm. of, of what um, once existed because it's obvious that as time goes on, you know, the community will be quite different than what it was for all those 60 years. And I don't want people to have no idea what was there before. You know, and I love that you say that because, again, those of us who are Chicagoans know all too well about, you know, the demise of of public housing here and what it's kind of done for that sense of community and that sense of place. And, you know, speaking of Chicago history, you know, you you also contributed to another book that we recently covered here on It's Lit, 400 Souls. And there you wrote about the legacy and residual effects of Red Summer here in Chicago. Now, that was an event that obviously also took place during Ida's tenure in the city. And as you just referred to, this is a city that's still very racially segregated. We're still feeling the effects of redlining. You know, given all that she fought for, like, what do you make of that, that legacy of of Chicago where Ida made her home? I mean, I, I think that Chicago is one example of what has happened over the entire country as far as sort of containing and or marginalizing African-Americans into certain spaces, you know, physical and uh, financial and educational and health and all kinds of other spaces, you know. And so I think that when people know why there are these disparities today in 2021, being a result of policy. I mean, you know, in our country, there's such a sort of narrative that if certain things are not happening right in your life, then it's your fault. You as an individual didn't work hard enough and you need to be more hardworking and persevering and all of this, right? And so, you know, I think we need to dismantle that narrative of personal fault being the cause of structural racism, structural and institutional racism or racial policies. And so I think that the more people really focus on how all of these type of things that have happened in our country that, you know, have created situations that have led to on average white households having 10 times the wealth 
of African-American households and, you know, the disparity when it comes to life expectancy, when it comes to the likelihood of being imprisoned. I mean, just on and on and on, all these sort of metrics are the cause of structural racism. It has nothing to do with Black people not being hardworking or, you know, some of the other excuses that have been used in the past of us being biologically inferior or, you know, just not having the natural ability to do certain things. None of that is true. And so we need to, as a country, face the fact that structural and institutional racism and laws were put in place that created enormous barriers for Black people to be able to prosper. Oh, that's all an excellent point. I mean, I, I think I get so enraged when people point to like, oh, personal responsibility, pull yourself up by your bootstraps as the response to structural racism. So that's yeah, it's, it's maddening. Well, right. Um, yeah. But to piggyback. <laughs> it is. Yeah. The other, yeah. Thing I will, the other thing I want to add to that is just this lack of accountability for mass destruction mm-hmm. for communities um, and mass murder against our our people. I mean, I've just been recently reading um, <laughs> Ida's pamphlet about the Arkansas race riot and I mean, she just left an absolute primary document that chronicles in excruciating detail the amount of loss. I mean, obviously, there was a loss of life, which was just massive. But the amount of stolen land um, Mm. and stolen property that we have never been compensated for. I mean, there's just been grand theft of, of our resources. You know, so so it's not a mystery, you know, why there's this wealth gap. And people really need to understand what has actually happened in our country to make this wealth gap happen. There has been theft yes. and destruction. And basically people, you know, but just the whole sharecropping system was based on exploitation. Yes. A hundred years of that after slavery, you know, so come on. I mean, 246 years of unpaid forced labor and then a hundred years following that of exploitation and grand theft and murder. So, you know, why, who, you know, (laughs) this is the reasons why we have all these disparities now. Oh yeah. I mean, you're preaching to the choir. It's like all that, like all those things happen just within my own family. So I know that it happened to multitudes of Black families across the South, across America, you know, during these race riots, so-called race riots that were really just what you just said. It was mass murder and grand theft. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. 
you know, when we're talking about the North and the South, it makes me think of another book that we recently featured here on It's Lit, uh, Charles Blow's book, The Devil You Know, where he proposes a reverse migration to the South, suggesting that Black people can coalesce power there. Ida famously fled to Chicago from Memphis, Tennessee to escape the threats visited upon her in the South. But given what she experienced and what the intervening century has shown us, do you think the North still holds the same promise for Black people as it did during Ida's time? Well, I think really where we are is that there is no safe space in our country, you know, because mm. obviously when when she first, you know, fled the South in 1892, the number of Black people living in the North was fairly small. And so there seems to be more resistance to African-American power when the numbers grow. And that was part of what happened in 1919, Red Summer, was that the numbers of Black people who had fled the South coming to the North increased the population of Black people by between 100 and 500 percent, depending on what city you're talking about. And so when you have more and more people coming, then that just seems to be a higher level of threat for white people. And so at this point, we have, you know, we still have a higher percentage of Black people living in the South than in the North overall. But there just seems to be a correlation between once Black people start, reach a certain threshold when it comes to percentage of the population, then it suddenly becomes, you know, something that people, other people consider threatening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely for a lot of people, they see it as like a zero-sum game, you know, like there's only X amount of resources or X amount of jobs to go around. So we have to push this population out and suppress it. So yeah. Well, I mean, some of that is deliberate when it comes to, again, when we're talking about institutional racism, Mm -hmm. that's what happened in Chicago was that the factory owners were pitting black migrants against European immigrants by Mm -hmm. uh, trying to, they were paying black people less money than they had been paying the European immigrants and then, you know, union busting and all this other kind of stuff. So then you have, you know, the, basically the, the two groups of people that are financially in the, the most vulnerable positions competing against each other and having a lot of resentment towards each other. So you have this dynamic that people literally do feel like these people are taking our jobs. And the same thing happened in East St. Louis, um, Illinois in 1917, which was another pamphlet that my great-grandmother wrote <laughs> about, um, you know, a riot that took place there. It was the same dynamic. There's almost like, it's like the same thing over and over where you have, in this country, you have Black people who migrated from the South in order to get away from domestic terrorism. And they come to the North and they're competing for jobs that tend to be, um, a lot of times they were jobs in labor or, you know, factories. And so they were competing against recent European immigrants for basically what would be considered almost minimum wage jobs. And so that's why it's a important for people to understand this is institutionally based. It's not individual people that are, you know, creating this whole dynamic. Of course, individual people run these organizations or institutions, but it's the institutional policies that are creating this dynamic. 
Okay, so one of the things that we find really revelatory about Ida's incredible life was her involvement in the first wave suffragette movement and her refusal to be sidelined within it. You write, quote, Ida had been around too long and endured too much complicity from white women involved in holding up a white supremacy to believe that white women's votes could fix the ills of the world, end quote. Just over a century later, she's still proven right. <laughs> Given what we've seen in the last two elections, how would you say contemporary white women's participation in upholding white supremacy lines up with what Ida described? Well, I mean, she wrote in her autobiography how she believed that white women gaining the right to vote would basically not change very much because white women would vote in the same way as their husbands. And so not that she didn't believe that women should have the right to vote. I mean, obviously she did believe women deserve the right to vote because we are citizens of this country. And she fought for women to have the right to vote. But she wasn't super uh, optimistic when it came to how women having the right to vote would change policies that were being upheld by people who had vested interest in white people holding on to power. Mm-hmm. because white women benefit from white power. You know, and Black women were involved in the suffrage movement um, and fighting for the right to vote for slightly different reasons than white women were, which was basically more focused on having an impact on race-based policies because Black women do have this double issue of racism plus sexism. And so Black women were focused on voting so that they could have input into the people who represented them in a political sense so that they can impact laws that were racially oppressive. And, you know, white women wanted to have equal power as the men in their families. You know, and I mean, you know, there's no broad, complete whole, you know, there's no 100% of anything. So obviously there were some white women who were abolitionists and were, you know, allies and, you know, didn't fall into that sort of category. But based on my great grandmother's life story and her personal experiences, that was her concern. Yeah, it was a very real concern because far too many, too many white women do choose their whiteness over actual true equality in this country, which was all, which was so disturbing to me about Trump, someone who had been predatory towards all women, but it's particularly <laughs> white women. It was still just like, eh, hey, we're just going to vote for him anyway because we need someone to protect us from whomever. So, uh, that is, you know, like she called it and it's still, it's still relevant today. Um, I think it goes without saying that journalists, particularly Black female journalists like myself and Maisha, you know, we owe a major debt to Ida B. Wells, who pioneered what we now call investigative reporting. We launched this podcast with Nicole Hannah-Jones, who co-founded the Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Reporting. She pointed out that the NAACP might never have even taken up lynching as a civil rights issue when we're still waiting legislation on if not for Ida's reporting. Quote, she was one of the first data reporters in this country, uh, Nicole said. What do you hope journalists glean from Ida's legacy? Well, one of the, the goals that I had with Ida Be the Queen was to 
give people a sense of the various strategies that my great grandmother Ida B. Wallace used throughout the course of her life. I mean, she obviously, you know, um, well, she started her career as an educator, and then she was obviously a journalist and a suffragist. She ended up being some people consider her to be a sociologist um, and a social worker, and um, she founded the Negro Fellowship League, so that, you know, was involved in rehousing and, you know, helping people to gain jobs. And so she was involved in so many different things. I personally feel that the common thread through everything that she did was fighting for first-class citizenship. And she used journalism as a form of activism in order to tell the story, to counter the narrative of what was being, what was pervasive at that time about Black men violating white women and exposed the idea of the truth that uh, lynching was being used as a form of oppression and terrorism and was being targeted in many cases towards the leaders of the Black community. And so it was a way to sort of send messages to the Black community that, you know, don't aspire to be in certain spaces or um, achieve certain things, otherwise you will be eliminated. And so I think, you know, that tradition of really, if you look at what she was doing, she was building a case for public opinion, for the court of public opinion, and using the truth as a weapon against the system that was implemented in our country that was basically, um, you know, a racial caste system that people were were having to navigate. Definitely. I mean, when I was growing up in the 80s, you know, like, I was very uh, fascinated by, interested in, and um, learned a lot about the apartheid movement in South Africa. And people would tell me how terrible it was for Black people there. And I would sit there and think like, wait, it's terrible here too. Like, we are basically still, we're living under similar systems of oppression that are embedded in every facet of our society and are structural in every way. But I want to turn this to you for a moment. One of the things that Maisha and I loved about this book is that you don't just give us Ida's impressive biography, but a bit of your own, which includes your own writing career, as well as being a professor, an editor, and a champion of racial and gender equity. In fact, as you explained, for much of your life, you forged your own path independent of Ida's legacy, writing, quote, Ida lived her life and I could live mine. And yet, just by virtue of Ida's fame, as well as your advocacy and commemoration of her, your legacy is intrinsically linked to hers. Is that ever overwhelming for you? I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, very appreciative of having this amazing legacy, you know, and I don't take it for granted that I come from, you know, I'm descended from somebody who's so well admired and you know, inspiring to so many people. And people could have their own explanations on why I personally, you know, have been attracted to this type of work because it wasn't like I was forced to or that I felt any kind of pressure to. And in fact, I um, I grew up as one of 15 grandchildren of my, my grandmother, who was Ida's youngest daughter. And there are a total of 18 of us great-grandchildren. So you know, some people want to say, well, you're following your great-grandmother's footsteps. I'm like, really? Why isn't everybody else? (laughs) So there's something about my own personal interest, you know, that has led me 
to want to make a difference when it comes to telling the stories of the African-American experience in ways that I think are more truthful and more encompassing of our entire experience because we are a multi-dimensional group of people. And I, I think from my own experience that there are too many false narratives right now, to, even in 2021, that are pervasive and they impact us on individual levels because people will see certain things in the news or they'll see certain things in TV and movies or whatever kind of mediums that they're looking at and think that they know something about Black people based on only what they see because they don't know anybody. They've never met anybody or they've had no close relationships with anybody Black. And so they're getting their ideas from outside sources. And I think that those sources are skewed towards the negative disproportionately. Um, And so I care, you know, I care about making an impact, making some kind of difference in shaping those narratives so that who we are as a people can be depicted in ways that I feel are more balanced and more realistic. (laughs) Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on It's Lit. It was such a fascinating and rich conversation. We greatly appreciate it. Well, well, thanks for having me, Danielle and Maisha. Um, This has been a lot of fun. (laughs) The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and you want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. And if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go... We always like to talk just a little bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what books are you into these days? You know, I am trying to get into new things, slowly but surely. So I've been looking at uh, a few things that have been sent to us. So I'm looking at The Other Black Girl and the, I'm sorry, the author's name is escaping me right now. But the narrative is fascinating. (laughs) You know, I think any of us who have been, you know, Black and or female, let alone both, in certain spaces, know that it can be a uh, fraught experience. And this book takes that to a next level. It takes it to, like, get out levels. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So so I'm reading this with some trepidation, but also a lot of empathy. What are you reading right now? (laughs) Well, I'm still in process of doing research for my own book, Um, So I've actually been reading a lot about Haitian voodoo, but when I'm Mm -hmm. not reading about Haitian voodoo, I'm reading about a different bit of mysticism, which is called WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. I'm obsessed. Last episode came out today and I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. I'm really excited. You guys are spoiling WandaVision for me. I haven't even gotten into it yet. And I'm like, I don't, do I need to get into it? Because You need to get into it. Okay, all right. You know, like if you've watched all the Marvel films as I have. Well, you have. And most of the Marvel (laughs) products as I have. It's very rewarding. (laughs) 
Okay, bye. It's a rewarding watch. I have not watched all the Marvel films, but I will get into it just on GP. And just so that you and I have fun things to discuss, because I love discussing things with you, because you're always so insightful about everything. Oh, so, thank you, Marcia. Bye, you know. That's what we do. Oh, well, sweet. <laughs> well, that's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> In the meantime, keep it lit. <laughs>